welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott, and I'm here to read you a bedtime story. This week, our author is James Bowden, who has been on the show before, a writer and editor whose most recent work, Whispers in the Dark, was amongst Amazon Canada's top 10 new and hot anthologies upon release. They live outside Montreal, Quebec, Canada, with their cats, Misha and Koshek, and their snake, Monty. When not writing, James is hard at work on crochet and cross-stitch pieces for their online shop, Handmade for Nerds. I will link James's latest book, Nightmare Fuel, in the show notes. Please go support them. They're such an incredible author. In fact, this story is one that I split into two parts, so I could really concentrate on each part and really do it justice. This is part one of Nani's Attic. Chapter 1 The notification came late, or early, depending on your view. 4.23 a.m., according to my phone. Nani fell. It wasn't the quiet, peaceful death we could have hoped for, but tripping on the stairs and hitting her head had to be quick, at least. Her in-home nurse found her the next morning. Apparently, she hadn't even heard Nani get up. Around eight, I was woken up by my husband. He was shaking me, his face pale, and without a word, he held up my phone. Most of it was panicked texts from my mother and sisters, demanding that I tell them what was happening. They were in New Delhi, visiting family, I, of course, hadn't been invited. No, the extended family was too ashamed to have a gay man in their family, much less invite him to a family reunion. But now, they needed me, in spite of the sad set of circumstances. I felt a sort of quiet glee at that notion. I was the only one here that could take care of my grandmother's affairs. I mean, don't get me wrong. My nanny loved my husband. My parents and sisters all adored him too. But they had the benefit of growing up in Canada instead of India, and therefore adopted Canadian values instead of strict Indian ones. As a matter of fact, only my nanny still wore her hijab. My siblings decided that they didn't care for it, and no one made a fuss. Not even nanny. That acceptance was a big help, especially when I needed to call around, looking for women my nanny had been close to. They needed to be as close to family as possible, given that my mother and sisters weren't there. There was a ton of stuff to do, and only a few hours to do it. Isaac, my husband, was quiet after the call that morning. He made me breakfast, it being his turn to cook. Then he curled up by the window in our living room with our elderly basset hound named the Ambassador and he stared out at the Montreal traffic. I didn't say anything. Isaac never coped well with death after losing far too many family members in his teen years. It affected him deeply and I didn't even ask him to come with me as I dressed in a suit and headed out to drive to the Islamic Cemetery up in Laval. However, I did take the time to warn Isaac that he was probably going to get swamped with people Nani knew from the mosque who would be bringing food. God, so much food. I at least had the good sense to warn Isaac about that before I rushed out of our apartment, given that he'd be home to welcome all the trays of food from well-meaning friends while the family made arrangements to get back home as soon as possible. 
The thing about Muslim funerals was that they were fast. It was like that with my other nani, and unfortunately Isaac had been clearly overwhelmed by the whole experience. He'd been good enough to be polite throughout the service, and only after we'd gotten home, with a metric ton of food in tow, he'd quietly asked if he could be excluded from the next one. It's not that I don't want to mourn your family members or anything, and I don't want to make this about me, he said in a rush, eyes wide with a familiar panic, his anxiety spiking faster than a pissed-off porcupine. It's just, death is hard for me to deal with. I want to be there for you, but if it's okay, can I not come to the funeral? I'd said it was fine, of course. I knew Isaac pretty well after being with him for ten years, and he'd always been paranoid about being respectful of my family's customs, almost to the point of overdoing it. The fact was, I was the laziest damn Muslim on the planet. I hadn't done daily prayers since I was 16, and I only went to the mosque during high holidays. Though I still fasted during Ramadan, and Isaac was happy to fast along with me for support. Really, he was an amazing man. Even so, I couldn't help but feel a bit weird about driving up to the cemetery all by myself. I called Isaac while I was stuck in traffic, and he picked up immediately. Hey, he said, and I smiled fondly at the sound of his voice. Hi, I replied. Sorry to bug you, I just... I guess I just needed someone to talk to. No, it's okay. Isaac replied, sounding a little out of breath as he spoke, and I winced. Hopefully he wasn't at home freaking out. That wouldn't be good. I'm sorry my bullshit brain is making me not able to come and support you. I hate it. But I don't want you to have a panic attack just to support me either. I replied gently, and Isaac let out a long huff like he didn't believe me. Isaac whined my name, adding far too many R's, and I snorted. Whenever he said my name like that, it usually meant I was being too nice to him. No, seriously, I said as I inched my way through the traffic. Just because my brain isn't missing any serotonin doesn't mean I can't empathize with you and your issues with death. I mean, you lost how many relatives in two years? Six? Eight. Isaac corrected, and I could practically hear him grimacing into the phone, paired with the background noise of the dog grunt snorting, which probably meant he had fully crawled into Isaac's lap like a cat. I still feel bad, though. I know, I replied, and I let out a long sigh. <sighs> Look, we can talk about it when I get home if you want. I mean... It's going to be pretty crazy for the next few days. My nani was very specific about having a traditional Muslim funeral, and it's already missing some traditions by my mom and sisters being away. Then there's the funnest part. Cleaning out her clutterific house? Isaac finished for me. Your mother is going to love that. I let out a loud snort, and Isaac responded with a nervous giggle. He wasn't sure if he was allowed to laugh. It was no secret that my mom was an enthusiastic minimalist, and she had been trying to clear Nani's house of clutter for years. I know my mom will want all hands on deck for that one, I continued. Will you be able to help? Yeah, that I can do. Isaac confirmed, even though he still sounded sad. I know your nani loved keeping every single thing. It's no problem. After a few more parting words and I love yous, I hung up, and I swung by a drive through for some coffee. I was definitely going to need it. At the cemetery, I met with the imam, and we discussed funeral arrangements. My mother and sisters were due back early the next morning, and I internally cringed on their behalf. They were going to be exhausted. 
As a result, the imam was able to squeeze us in in the afternoon, and I then met with one of the cemetery employees to select a gravestone. I kept it traditional. My nani's name, written in Arabic, followed by an epitaph in English. And he has made me blessed wherever I am. It was shockingly easy to dig that piece of scripture out of my head, like it had been waiting there for me to place it on my nani's stone. Of course, I checked it with my mother and sisters first, and when they all confirmed that they were happy with it, I gave the go-ahead to the engraver. Once all the hard stuff was done, I immediately headed back home. I was fully aware that my presence at the washing and wrapping of my nani's body would not just be unwelcome, but not be permitted. Instead of dwelling on it, I just drove. I felt strangely hollow, knowing my nani was gone. And I wondered in a vague sort of way what my father would have thought if he had been here. I hadn't thought about my father in a long time. He'd gotten my mother pregnant with my older sister at 17. Then he was guilted into getting married by his own family. They stayed together for five years, long enough to have all three of us, then went out to buy milk and never came back. My mother was frantic, convinced he'd been kidnapped or murdered, only to find out that his whole family had uprooted themselves and went back to Mumbai, never to be heard from again. My mom remarried not long after but it still stung sometimes, especially at times like this. I let out a long sigh and tightened my hands around the wheel as I drove. It was going to be a long couple of days. Back home, as expected, our counters were stacked high with food. The air was thick with smells of home. Chaat, chole bature, biryani, samosas, and dal. There were even a few boxes of dalat kichat and jalebis. Clearly, the family friends were determined to make only Delian food, and I felt deeply grateful for it. It was so warming, those familiar scents of my mother and my nani's cooking, and even though it was still early, I popped open one of the Tupperware containers and ladled out a bowl of the spicy dal topped with some chicken tikka. It was still warm, and the naan in one of the accompanying bags was still soft, like it had been made less than an hour ago. I'd been so wrapped up in making the plate for myself and thinking about my family and my nani, that I hardly noticed Isaac, who was watching me from the kitchen entryway. When I turned around, however, the sight of him startled me so much that I nearly dropped all the food I'd been holding and Isaac smiled at me, sadly. He looked tired, exhausted even, but he still asked, you doing okay? I smiled at that, reminded how caring my husband was. I didn't say anything until I'd moved over to our little round dining table and wove my spoon through the doll thoughtfully. I, I don't know. I replied honestly. I don't think it's completely sunken yet, to be honest. I'm still feeling sort of numb. Isaac followed me to the table, and he wrapped his arms around my shoulders from behind. He pressed a kiss to my hair, and I rubbed my hand across his arm. Thank God for this man. I thought as I began to eat. I watched as Isaac let me go and went to fix himself a plate. The next morning, as expected, my family showed up at their gate looking as tired as I felt. I held up the tray of coffees and container of Timbits wordlessly, and my sisters shuffled forward to take them from me. You're the best. My oldest sister, Amira, Amy to us, mumbled around the lid of the paper and plastic cup, her rectangular glasses fogging up as she took a long, fortifying sip. Coffee good! Jamila, our middle sister, said in agreement, 
voicing it like some kind of coffee zombie, while my mother took the last cup with a warm, affectionate smile. Thank you, Sammy, my mom said, and I felt my cheeks heat up at the childhood nickname. I guided them all back to my car while they traded the box of Timbits back and forth, none of them really speaking, though I couldn't exactly fault them for that. The ladies from the mosque had shown up at my place with even more food deliveries, this time all labeled for my siblings or my mother, and when I told my mom that, she smiled fondly. Your nani was always very good at finding the best people, my mom said while she dabbed at the corners of her eyes. I'm going to miss her very much. I didn't know what to say. I hummed and drove on. We made the necessary stop at my mother's house, where she and my sisters got out and rushed upstairs to drop off their luggage and change into appropriate garb for the funeral. Appropriate garb for my mom and sisters being hijabs and long black pants and shirts or skirts. I was dressed in a simple black suit and a topi. The skull cap felt tight against my thick hair, but I wasn't about to complain. Not when my mom and sisters had so much more hair to cover up for the funeral. When they returned to the car, it was equally awkward and silent as we drove from NDG to the mosque in Laval. We were cutting the 48-hour mark pretty fine, but no one appeared all that stressed about it. The drive wasn't that long, and the sooner we finished, the sooner we could all go home and crash. Myself included. I hadn't slept much last night as I waited, a ball of stress and nerves to see when my family's plane was due to arrive home. At the mosque, people were already arriving at the viewing room, a space within the mosque, but not within the main prayer hall itself. It wasn't a long ordeal, but it still felt exhausting to endure as family, friends, and colleagues filtered into the room and offered us their condolences while we stood next to the wooden coffin that held the wrapped body of my late grandmother. I knew that if we'd been in India, the body would not be in a coffin, but simply wrapped, but Canadian law insisted on it. Many of my nani's friends complained about it, how it wasn't traditional, and I smiled benignly through their complaints in bursts of English, French, Hindi, and Arabic. After about an hour, the casket was moved on to the main prayer hall, and we were instructed to follow. Our mosque was more modern rather than staunchly traditional, and as a result, the women were permitted to sit with their families rather than forced to stay in the back. The more traditional members of the mosque still tutted at that, and they sat in their designated spots proudly, and frowned at any person who refused to follow suit. I felt a modicum of pride when my mother and sisters sat with me at the front and listened to the imam announce where the burial would be held, then led the gathered mourners in the brief funeral prayer, the janazah. Then, in less than ten minutes, everyone was following the procession out of the mosque, into their cars, and off to the cemetery. The burial was a blur. I remembered throwing the three handfuls of dirt onto Nani's coffin, and I remembered holding Jamila as she tried to keep her composure and not cry. I remembered inviting my siblings and mother back to my apartment where Isaac was heating up the food for us after. I don't remember the specifics during or after the burial, of who I accepted condolences from, or how I even got back to my apartment, where Isaac was waiting with a table leaden heavily with food, and two huge coolers packed to the brim with food for my mom and sisters. At the very least, my family was very accepting of Isaac and his issues with death, and didn't say a word about his absence, and thanked him warmly when they saw the table overfilled with food. I want to start cleaning out Nani's house this week, my mom said as she used a piece of bread to scoop up a mouthful of chicken biryani. It's going to take a lot of time, so I want all of you to help, understand? There was a sleepy mumbling of agreement, save for Isaac, the only one of us who was fully rested. He seemed happy to help, 
which certainly seemed to aid in curbing any ill will my family may have privately been feeling over Isaac's absence that morning. I squeezed Isaac's hand under the table, and that earned me a sweet, shy smile. Chapter 2 Cleaning of the house, as expected, was a lot of work. Step one was going through the house and cleaning out the perishables, tossing Nani's medications and toiletries, and then deciding which family heirlooms should be kept. The family Quran, prayer mats, antique books, the cookbooks especially, and other little trinkets that were so entirely Nani. Then came the hard part, going through boxes upon boxes of stuff she'd kept throughout the years to keep toss or donate. Most of it was garbage, magazines from 1967, battered clothing she'd kept to mend but never got to, along with the ancient seasonal decorations. Nani had gotten really into the secular side of Christmas after moving to Canada, and other stuff we couldn't justify keeping. The stuff that was in decent shape went to donation bins, and it alarmed us at how fast they seemed to fill up. As a result, we had to drive around until we found another second-hand store to donate to. And that was just the basement. Around our workdays, we slowly sifted through the house for three weeks, donating or selling anything that would be wasteful just to throw out. We gradually ate through the mountain of food we'd been gifted with, and Isaac was eager to help sort and toss stuff, as though he was desperately trying to make up for his absence at the funeral service. We'd all told him that wasn't necessary, and that we didn't blame him for not coming. But he never listened. The last thing to tackle was the attic. That stopped us all in our tracks, and me, Amy, and Jamila exchanged an uncertain look, which caused our mother and Isaac to blink at us. What's wrong? Our mother asked. I said, go to the attic and get started. We all giggled nervously, and our mother rolled her eyes. Oh, Allah, not this again. What? Jamila whined. It's creepy up there. It's an attic. There's nothing spooky or scary about it, our mother said while she pinched the bridge of her nose in clear annoyance. Just go. Still giggling while her mother grumbled at us, <laughs> Isaac fell in step with me and took my hand. What's so creepy about this attic? Isaac asked. His tone seemed to waver in a half-joking sort of territory, even as he smiled at me. Is it haunted? I don't know if haunted is the right word. Just creepy. Jamila filled in as she looked over her shoulder and smiled at Isaac. Technically, Muslims don't believe in ghosts, just, you know, other stuff. Like, gin? Isaac guessed, and Amy nodded as she pulled back her long, wavy hair and piled it on top of her head in a messy bun. Pretty much, yeah, Amy replied. I mean, I don't know if I really believe in that stuff, but Nani's attic has always been pretty creepy. When Nani got older and Mom asked us to go help her with Christmas decorations... It was always a big fight for who had to go in the attic to get the lights. Everyone would rather go to the basement for everything else, I offered, which caused Isaac to snort. <laughs> yep, Jamila added, popping the pee as she spoke, and as the tallest of us, she reached up and grabbed the cord, pulling down the ladder. As it slid down, I caught it, and once it was carefully set in place, the three of us climbed up into the dusty attic. Nani's attic was pretty weird. It wasn't that it was full of trinkets or it was the home of a family of raccoons or something, but it was very organized. Bigger boxes were stacked up carefully. Everything was kept meticulously clean, even dusted on the regular, at least until Nani's passing a few weeks earlier. There were shelves along one wall that displayed a few random trinkets, as kids, we weren't usually allowed up here, and when it was time for us to help Nani with getting the decorations for whatever holiday it happened to be, 
we were told to never, ever touch anything on those shelves. Not that we were really tempted. Nani was a great lady, but terrifying when she got mad. Plus, the attic creeped us all out too much for us to hang around and poke at the stuff on the shelves. We just wanted to get out of there as fast as possible. Even now, when I was gradually approaching 36, I felt a weird chill as I stepped up into the attic. I rolled my shoulders, and I saw Jamila run her hands up and down her bare arms. Now that Nani's funeral had long since been over and done with, my sisters and my mom had divested themselves of their hijabs and conservative clothing, and they went back to their fitted jeans and t-shirts. Why is it always so cold in here? Jamila demanded, and Amy glanced pointedly to the little round window, which was, at the moment, heavily obscured with snow. Couldn't be the weather, Amy said dryly, and Jamila let out an annoyed huff. Let's just get this done, I interrupted before they could start arguing. Jamila pursed her lips like she really wanted to argue with Amy, but instead, she stomped over to one of the stack of boxes and grabbed the one on top. For the next hour, we transported boxes down to the main level. Jamila or I would grab a box and pass it to Amy or Isaac, who would then carry it downstairs to the living room, where my mom would open it up and go through it, making an executive decision as to whether or not the contents were worth keeping, donating, or throwing out. It was a pretty effective system, in spite of a few spats between Amy and Jamila, who continued to bicker on the tired subject of whether or not the attic was creepy, I kept my own feelings on the subject firmly under lock and key. I felt the chills, the uneasy feelings, and the uncomfortable sensation like I was being watched. If I told either sibling that, Amy would get mad and accuse me of ganging up on her, while Jamila would act like a total snot because she was right. On the whole, it definitely wasn't worth it. As an added bonus, our system made it go by pretty fast, and soon we were faced with empty boxes, packing paper, and the shelves. Did anyone ever figure out why she has this stuff on display like this? Jamila asked as we all stood there, staring at the shelves, none of us knowing where to begin. I wasn't sure about my sisters, but I felt really uneasy as I stood there. Even with Nani gone, it felt like even touching the shelf wasn't allowed. Maybe she had tea parties up here, Amy offered with a wry smirk, and Jamila rolled her eyes. Most likely, it was stuff she didn't want being broken by us, I said quickly before Jamila could respond. I mean, Nani never took the plastic off her couches. You really think she'd trust anyone to be around her finest collection of vases or whatever? I looked back at the shelves. True to my remark, it was mostly different kinds of vases on the shelves. They looked hand-painted, mostly Middle Eastern designs in beautiful blues and whites. They looked expensive. No wonder Nani wouldn't trust them around a group of rambunctious kids. I let out a long breath and rocked on my heels on the wooden floor, making it creak. Isaac looked over to me, like he was waiting for a cue, and I felt my heart constrict. My bundle of anxiety I called a husband looked so lost in the moment, like he wasn't sure if he was allowed to start before we did. I wasn't about to make his anxiety worse, and after I let out a long breath, I stepped forward, almost at a run, and I reached at random for the first vase I saw. A white one, with blue writing in Arabic. It had a square bottom with a rounded top, finishing with a ceramic cover, like a strangely shaped cookie jar. It was beautiful. Was being the operative word, because of course, I was so eager to get this part of packing over with, that instead of grabbing the jar, I smacked it making it fly off the shelf and shatter at my feet in a million tiny pieces. Nice going, Sammy. Jamila snarked, and I ground my teeth. Don't move, I'll get a broom. I pursed my lips and stared down at my socked feet, 
covered in pieces of ceramic. I rubbed my hands up and down my arms. Even in a t-shirt and hoodie, I felt a distinct chill, like I'd done something truly unforgivable in that moment. But that was just crazy, wasn't it? I looked over to Isaac, but his expression was blank and closed off, like he was thinking hard about something. I reached out for him, and his expression shifted to a warm smile, and he took my hand and offered it a gentle squeeze. I relaxed a bit, just as Jamila thundered back up the ladder with a garbage bag, broom, and dustpan, still berating me for my clumsiness, which I ignored. Doing my best to dismiss the feeling like a black cat had crossed my path, I carefully stepped out of the ceramic mess and helped my sister clean it up. Amy finished up our sweeping job by passing over the area with a vacuum, softly grumbling as she did so. But not without good reason. Nani's vacuum was big, old, and clunky. Not exactly the easiest thing to tote up a ladder, even with Isaac's help. After that little mishap, and my sisters deciding that I couldn't be trusted to touch Nani's cherished pot collection, I was forced to hang back and watch while they wrapped up the remaining pots, while Isaac carefully carried the filled-up boxes downstairs. Once the shelves had been emptied, I was called back into action to carefully take apart the shelves, stack up the pieces of the cheap particle board, and carry them downstairs. Amy immediately called dibs on the shelves. Even our mom complained that they were cheap and not worth taking home. Amy ignored her and happily began to detail out all the plants she planned to put on the shelves, most of which we'd never heard of, which led to Jamila calling her a botany nerd, and then our mother stepped in to stop Amy from snapping something back. I kept my mouth firmly shut as I watched them argue. Some things never changed. Chapter 3 As the last few boxes were sent to my mom's house or to the necessary donation bins, I nearly sang out loud in relief. I drove me and Isaac home, and with the gifted food mostly gone by now, we ordered pizza and relaxed on the couch, too wiped out to do more than stare at the TV with glassy eyes. Thanks for all your help, I said later as we lay in bed together. Isaac put down his novel, thumb marking his page, and he turned to smile at me, tiredly, while he said, Happy to do it, sweetheart. I know I stink at funerals, but I'm no stranger to how much work it takes to clean out a house. I wasn't about to let you do all that by yourself. Still, thanks. Isaac answered by leaning over the dog to kiss me, and I smiled as I reached up to touch his cheek, drawing it out a little bit longer before we parted. I went back to my ebook, and he went back to his paperback. I was asleep. Or, I was pretty sure I was, at least. Asleep, but in bed still. So, dreaming, then. Was I dreaming? I blinked my eyes, but the darkness didn't fade. I felt something move under the covers. A weird squirming sensation, one that I was pretty sure a human body couldn't make. I pawed on my night table for a second, and the vibrations caused my phone to light up. I unplugged it, flicked on the flashlight, and pulled back the covers. Then, I screamed. I probably should have been embarrassed by how loud and how long I screamed as I scrambled out of the bed and threw myself against the furthest wall. My body seemed to be locked in the fetal position, even forgetting about Isaac as he jumped out of bed and ran over to me, calling my name even as I kept screaming. A snake! There's a snake! I cried. Sobs choked my throat as Isaac stared at me like I'd lost my mind. Why was he looking at me like that? There was a snake in our bed. A pounding sounded from the front door while the ambassador climbed off the bed carefully and waddled over to me, ears pricked and tail wagging slowly with concern. Don't move, Isaac commanded as he cupped my cheeks with his hands, 
His brow knitted with worry as he stared at me. I just need to reassure our neighbor that no one's being murdered, okay? I nodded feebly as I hugged the ambassador close to me, my eyes sliding to the bed. There was a huge snake in the bed. Why wasn't Isaac freaking out about this more? I watched as Isaac rushed from the room and headed for the front hall. Suddenly, I felt my cold chill shift to anger. I could clearly hear my loving husband speaking to the neighbor still, and he uttered one single specific word. Cauchemar. The French word for nightmare. Didn't he understand that there was a snake in our bed? I wondered, my vision going hazy as I sat there, still shaking. I saw the bedding shift, telling me that it was definitely still there and that I wasn't crazy. No, there was definitely something in there, something my subconscious definitely didn't invent. Isaac came back a few minutes later with a cup of chamomile tea, which he pressed into my hands. It wasn't a nightmare, you asshole! I croaked. There's a snake in our bed! It's huge! Isaac looked back at the bed. The rumpled covers were still, and I saw his brow crease with confusion. Unlike me, Isaac never had a pathological fear of snakes and had rescued them from the wrath of my family on more than one occasion, when we'd all gone to our family lake house in Trois-Rivières during the summer. As a result, Isaac got up fearlessly and strode over to the bed. I wanted to shout at him, stop him, tell him to be careful. I'm not sure which. Unfortunately, all the dire warnings seemed to be stuck in my throat as I hugged the ambassador close and watched as Isaac grabbed the edge of our comforter and tugged it off the bed to reveal... Nothing. There was nothing there. Isaac didn't say anything. He didn't even look at me as he stripped the bed down to the fitted sheet, shook everything out, scoured the underside of the table using his flashlight, looked in the closet and under our night tables, everything I did for him when a spider got into the apartment. I didn't understand it at all. I'd seen the comforter move, and yet, even with all Isaac's searching, he turned up nothing at all. Babe, would you get mad at me if I said the N-word? I glared at him, and he sighed. It wasn't a nightmare, I insisted, my voice still groggy from sleep and all my screaming. I saw a fucking cobra in our bed. I saw it. I know I did. Well, it's not there now. Isaac said as he sat down across from me and reached out to pet my hair. Logically, I knew he was probably trying to be reassuring, but in my current state it felt more condescending than anything else. Want to come back to bed? We both have to work in the morning. I didn't want to get back into the bed. Even looking at the bed made me feel sick to my stomach. There was a huge snake somewhere, and if I went to sleep, it might come back. And yet, for some reason I didn't completely understand, I found myself nodding. Isaac helped to gently dislodge the dog from my lap, and he pulled me to my feet. I shuffled to the bed with Isaac's help, almost forgetting about the chamomile tea I'd been holding. And as a result, I very nearly spilled it all over the bedspread. Thankfully, Isaac's keen eye caught what was about to happen and pried the mug from my hands. He set it on my night table. Then he helped me crawl back into bed, uncertainly. Even with all of Isaac's reassurances, I still felt compelled to check under the covers. But there was no snake in our bed. Isaac didn't comment on that, even as he walked through the apartment to switch all the lights off again and he didn't say a word about my need to leave my bedside lamp on for the rest of the night, on a low setting. He just put on a sleep mask, kissed me goodnight, and hugged a pillow to his chest, going back to sleep in what seemed like an instant. 
I, on the other hand, stayed awake, staring at the ceiling as I tried to find sleep. The ambassador climbed back onto the bed, on his creaky, arthritic limbs. Then he tucked himself right in between Isaac and I. I ran my hand down the basset hound's back, slowly. And eventually, I did fall back to sleep. After the chaos of the previous night, it was no wonder that Isaac and I both woke up late. We rushed through our showers, fed the dog, grabbed breakfast, and headed out the door in a mad dash. Isaac to the closest dépanneur, and me to my realtor's office. Being a realtor involved an overt amount of pep, and it didn't matter how little I was feeling in the morning. Admittedly, I was still feeling a bit queasy after the chaotic night. I still needed to make a good impression on prospective buyers. So, coffee. Lots of coffee. Given that I worked primarily in the boroughs around Montreal's downtown core, I spent my morning in Cotonneg, showing a flipped two-story house to prospective buyers. The broad, enthusiastic smile never left my face as I guided people on tour after tour. All the smiling almost hurt, but by three o'clock, it started to feel less forced, which I guess was something of an improvement, even if I still felt exhausted. At the end of the day, I took down the balloons and the Journée Porte Ouvert sign with my face emblazoned on it and locked up before I headed home. With the traffic, I got back home around six, and even in our hallway, I could smell Isaac cooking up a storm. His turn tonight. So I could smell the sharp scent of garlic and tomatoes, telling me he was making his speciality, pumpkin lasagna. Maybe to the outside world at large, that sounded completely gross, but in reality, it was a special kind of amazing. He mixed the ricotta with pumpkin, sun-dried tomatoes, garlic, and spices, then layered it with the necessary cheese, noodles, and sauce, and served it with garlic bread. My mouth watered just thinking about it. The ambassador let out a little howl when I stepped in the door, hopping off our beat-up leather couch to greet me. And I smiled when Isaac called out from the kitchen, Hi, babe! After I kicked off my boots and took off my coat, I walked into the kitchen to greet him, pecking him on the lips while I remarked, It smells amazing in here. Figured you could use a little pick-me-up after last night's, uh, ordeal, he explained, and I couldn't help but huff a laugh. Now that I had a whole day to think it over, it made a lot more sense that it was probably a nightmare. A really weird, intense nightmare, and I was still convinced that I'd been awake, but still, a nightmare. That was the only thing that made sense after all. There was no way a cobra could be slithering around our apartment building, and especially not in the winter. Need any help? I asked. It's nearly done, he replied as he gestured to the oven where the lasagna was bubbling away, but still covered in foil. You could help me do the garlic bread if you want. Sure. I tugged off my blazer and rolled up the sleeves of my work shirt while Isaac pulled the beeswax wrap off his homemade garlic butter and passed it over to me, along with the Italian-style loaf of bread. Both of us were too enthusiastic about garlic bread to use something as slender as a French baguette, after all. I sliced into the bread, stopping at the bottom so the crust would stay attached, then made another careful slice. Isaac was leaning against the counter, a podcast playing softly in the background. And though I could feel the awkward silence growing as tangibly between us as a third person entering the room, I chose to ignore it. Isaac, however, did not. So, have you ever had a night terror like that before? A night what? I asked, stopping mid-slice as I turned to Isaac, who looked as calm and composed as he did last night during my nightmare freakout. A night terror, he repeated calmly. In a nutshell, exactly what happened last night. I clenched my jaw as I returned to my meticulous bread slicing. I didn't know exactly why I was so angry, but for some reason the notion of something 
as unpleasant sounding as a night terror being applied to myself, didn't feel right. I didn't say anything for a long time, silently hoping that Isaac might change the subject if I never answered his question. But he just kept silent, patiently waiting for me to say something. No, I replied at last. That was the first time it's ever happened. Isaac hummed, and I heard the oven door creak. When I paused my slicing and turned around, I saw Isaac lifting the corner of the foil with his bare fingers, as though the heat from the oven didn't bother him at all. I suppose the lasagna looked good to him because he peeled off the foil completely and pressed the broil button on the stovetop, then went back to leaning against the counter while he watched me work on the garlic bread. He didn't say anything. In fact, he didn't reply to my statement at all beyond that little hum. It was a sound I'd heard before, a sort of, I knew it sort of sound. Maybe because being right was a fundamental need for both of us and pointing out our wrongs usually led to a really stupid argument. I fought against the temptation to snappishly ask what his hum had meant. Instead, I finished my bread slicing and picked up the garlic butter. As expected, dinner was amazing. I went back for seconds and thirds of Isaac's lasagna, which brought a small, proud smile to my husband's face. I took care of cleanup, as was our custom, and Isaac took the ambassador out for a quick walk while I wrapped up the leftovers and rinsed off plates before I tucked them into the dishwasher. I didn't mind the monotonous work of cleaning, really. After spending all day with a fake smile on my face, it was nice to let go and just let my face do whatever it wanted while I worked, wiping down counters and cleaning out the sink, shaking the tablecloth outside, all while my Bluetooth speaker played my metal playlist. The guttural screams and shrieking guitars relaxed me in a way that my whole family thought was completely and utterly insane. I chuckled at that thought. I remembered my nanny begging me to go to the mosque more often instead of those concerts, and I'd always gently promised to think about it to placate her. Though, in reality, I had no plans to do that. The memory brought a sad sort of smile to my face as I stepped back inside, with a tablecloth folded over my arm. The moment my foot touched the rug that laid in front of the sliding door, I heard my speaker's music shift to loud static, like an AM-FM radio that lost its signal. I winced at the noise and I rushed over to shut it off, tracking melting snow into the apartment in my haste, and as my fingers slammed down on the power button, I heard the faintest muttering in the background of the dissonant static, like a weak radio signal trying to break through. Admittedly, I wasn't paying very close attention, given that I was in a rush to get the thing to turn off, but when I jammed on the power button, nothing happened. Oh, come on! I grumbled, even as the voice in the background grew louder and louder. It became almost deafening as I clicked the power button over and over, but nothing happened. As I gave up, my ears ringing, I raced out to my home office to cut the Bluetooth connection, only to skid to a stop halfway there when it clicked with me just what the voice was. Arabic. It was speaking Arabic. What the actual fuck? My Arabic was as rusty as Isaac's elliptical machine which he hadn't touched in five years. I wasn't certain what it said, but I knew it was Arabic. Logging that away for examination later, I finally made it to my office and clicked the Bluetooth button. I heard my little speaker beep, indicating that it had lost its connection, and Mashuga began to play softly through my computer. No static, and no Arabic. I fell down into my computer chair, probably harder than was wise. I stared at the screen, like it might suddenly give me answers to whatever the hell was happening while I tried to catch my breath. I heard Isaac return, letting out a cheerful greeting, closely followed by the gentle skittering of the ambassador's claws against the floor. He nosed his way into the office and plopped his head in my lap, and I pet his head while I continued to stare at my computer, at a loss for what the hell had just happened. 
babe? I looked up and saw Isaac standing there in socked feet, his black wool coat open and his striped black and gray scarf hanging loosely around his neck. He looked concerned, but before I could ask, he said, Mrs. Yoshida next door asked that we, uh, keep the Bollywood music down. Since I know in your family it's only your mom and sisters who willingly watch Bollywood musicals, I wanted to make sure you didn't accidentally have a stroke while I was out or something. It wasn't Bollywood anything, I replied. The Bluetooth speaker went all weird and started talking to me in static and Arabic for some reason. What did it say? Something in Arabic. That's helpful, Isaac remarked sarcastically, and I shot him a glare. My family speaks Hindi, I clarified. I'm pretty sure you knew that. Yes, I do know that, Isaac shot back. You are sitting in front of all the information ever in history, you dolt. You didn't think to just look it up? I felt my cheeks flush pink in embarrassment, but Isaac thankfully didn't hold it against me. To be honest, I wasn't so invested in whatever my speaker had been saying to find out, but Isaac was the exact opposite. It would bug the shit out of him until he found out. Reluctantly, I pulled out my phone hit the microphone on the search engine, and spoke into it. Anna Hrin. To my growing unease, an actual result popped up, almost at once. Anna Hrin. I am free. I felt a chill course through me, and I didn't even know why it unsettled me so much. In between the vanishing snake and this... It felt significant. Well? Isaac prompted, his voice making me jump. I'd almost forgotten he was there. What does it say? Uh, uh, nothing, I said quickly. It must have been gibberish. Um, pareidolia, you know? But like the audio equivalent of that. Isaac hummed, almost like he was disappointed. Strangely, it sounded like he hoped the voice would have said something real. However, I knew Isaac unfortunately too well at this point in our relationship, and I knew if I told him that it was actual words, he'd freak out and call a psychic. Instead, I just kept my mouth shut and stared into my phone. What did this mean? Did it mean anything, or was it just as I said, me hearing nonsense and my brain turning it into words? But then... It wasn't like I spoke Arabic regularly, or at all. Hell, my French was barely passable, and I'd been losing my Hindi ever since I stopped practicing when I was 15. Instead, I put away my phone and went back to the aborted cleanup. I put away the tablecloth, wiped down the countertops, then joined Isaac on the couch for brownies and mint tea. I'd almost convinced myself that it was all in my head. Almost. That is, until I went to bed that night. As I switched off the lights and stared out into the hall, I saw the silhouette of something, no, someone, standing there, watching us sleep. I screwed my eyes shut and pretended that I didn't see it. Thanks for listening, and thank you again to James Bowden, the author of this week's and next week's story. Well, they're all they're they're both going to come out this week for reasons. Uh, thank you again, James. I cannot wait to see how this ends. Well, I know, but you'll have to wait to find out. Um, so basically, after the live show, first of all, thank you so much to those of you who came out to the live show. There were way more of you than I expected. I had a blast. I'm going to do a little mini vlog of the live show, and I took some video for, of like rehearsal and little things here and there, and little snippets of the show, maybe just teeny little ones, so you don't nothing gets given away because 
spoiler alert, um, we did well enough in ticket sales that we will be doing other live shows. Very excited about that. Hopefully we'll be coming to a city near you. Um, yeah, very excited. Uh, if you want to request a city, all I can say is, I guess, tweet at or somehow con or go to Instagram at bloody FM and let them know where you want us to come next uh, and tell them and they'll listen, uh, hopefully. <laughs> so the live show went amazing. The reason this is so late is because some of you may have seen on social media, I put up a little thing saying that I was wiped out after the live show. I thought that I was just um, a little, um, maybe a little hungover and also just tired from, it was an exhausting day. We rehearsed all day. I got to meet so many of you. It was amazing. And um, I thought I was just wiped out from that. But a couple days later, I developed a really bad fever and what I believe to be tonsillitis and I couldn't hardly swallow. It was so painful. It was so painful. Oh my God. I, I was in agony. And then I did this dumb thing. Well, it wasn't dumb. It was just, I was trying to, you know, drink a lot of fluids. I hadn't had any caffeine and I am prone to migraines. So I definitely am. I'm not like a calf. I, I guess I am. I'm a caffeine addict, but um, <laughs> I hadn't had any caffeine. So on top of the tonsillitis one night, I was like, it was like someone was stabbing me in the throat and the ears with knives. And then I also got a migraine and it felt like I was going to die. It was so bad. So that is why this episode is so late. Um, my voice is almost back to normal. Um, it still hurts kind of, even though it sounds better. So that's why these episodes are out of whack. Uh, I had recorded this full episode before I left. I just had like 10 more minutes of the story to edit. And I was like, I can just throw up the intro and outro when I get back Friday. I got back um, at like 3 p.m. on Friday. No big deal. Did not anticipate I would be wiped out so, so hard. And I didn't anticipate that the day after that, it would turn into a very bad illness. So I really apologize for the, uh, the lack of communication and the weird scheduling uh, but you know, sometimes your body just goes, that's enough <laughs> and you need to lay down. So, and I think that's what my body did. I've been so busy and Halloween was crazy. The live show was crazy all in a good way, all, all in a great way. So hopefully we'll be back to our regular scheduled programming and very happy to do so. The next part of this should come out this week. Um, that's if I, I'm not going to promise it'll be out like on Thursday night like it's supposed to but it will be out by the end of this week and then next week I will I 100% promise we will be back on schedule um and I again I really apologize um yeah that's about it I didn't do any baking I basically laid there and drank fluids for the last few days and again I'm gonna have a vlog out for the live show so I can talk about it more there, so I don't take up your time here. But seriously, bottom of my heart, thank you so much to those of you who came out. I can't remember everyone's names because it was such a whirlwind, but someone brought me cat treats or cat toys for Clara. Um, I had some meaningful conversations with some of you. I won't repeat here because they might have been private, but I, I had some real great connections with so many of you, and I was blown away by the attendance. It was... <laughs> It was something else. It was something else. I was, I, I'm still on cloud nine, just, you know, walking on air over here. And yeah, anyway, follow the show on all the socials, Instagram, Twitter, um, Facebook, uh, all at scare you to sleep. If you have a show, if you have a story you'd like considered for the show, send it to scare you to sleep at gmail.com. I think that's all go by James's book. It'll be in the show notes. Uh, I don't want to talk too much because I don't want to uh, waste the little bit of my voice that I have today. It was a big win today. I could actually talk. So I'm going to go. I love you so much. Um, I think I'm remembering. Oh, one more thing. Thank you so much for those of you who pushed for me to get past that 4,000 hour mark on YouTube because I officially was able to submit myself for the monetization program. And I really appreciate you for that. It's going to help so much to have that little bit of extra income 
and I'm going to do a lot more for YouTube now. Uh, it's going to be worth my time and effort. Uh, not that it wasn't before for fun, but you know, sometimes that little bit helps. <laughs> so I'm very excited. And thank you so much to those of you who viewed all my videos to help me push, to help push me along because it worked. And today I officially submitted. So yay. Can't wait to hear back. Um, I think it takes, they said up to a month to actually get up to be a part of the program. So we'll see. I'll keep you all updated. Um, all right, I'm going to go. I can feel that little twinge in the back of my throat. I love you. Go get some sleep, please. For me, not don't just drink water. Please go take some vitamin C and I don't know what else. Whatever you have been have grown up knowing is going to be good for your immune system, whether that's zinc or chicken noodle soup or putting onions in your socks. Um, go do that, okay? Don't get sick like I did. <laughs> All right, I love you. Go get some sleep. Sweet dreams.